0: good morning as we turn to the preaching of the word I'll ask you to open your Bibles to the gospel book of Matthew chapter 6 if you're using a pew Bible it's in page 1030 the gospel of Matthew chapter 6 specifically we're going to be focusing on verses 9 and 10 as we look at his name his kingdom and his will and I want to give you some context for the reason for selecting this passage. For the past 9 weeks, we've been teaching the children of the church as well as the youth on what it means to pray or to pray, what prayer is. We've been walking through this prayer, what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, and we've been learning the posture of prayer, what we're to pray for. For each of us need to learn to pray but we must understand that it is contrary to our human nature and before we jump into it i also want to stress three things first i want you to understand it's taken me nine weeks 45 minute lessons each to get through these two verses so hold on second more seriously i do want to encourage us as a church engage with one another engage with the children engage with your children with the youth. And encourage each other to talk about what we've been learning and how we have been growing in the knowledge of who God is and how that has impacted our prayer life. And the last thing I would like to stress is how difficult it is to stand before you and to preach on such a topic as prayer. For no one will ever be able to say that I pray enough or even good enough. So I bring this to you uh, with great humility and I want to learn alongside of you. So let us open and read Matthew 6, and I'm going to back up a little bit. There's not a therefore, but we want to bring it back to make sure we're in context. Matthew 6, starting in verse 5 through 10. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I said, this text is typically referred to as the Lord's Prayer, but all scholars and theologians agree that it should correctly be labeled as the Disciples' Prayer. The Disciples' Prayer. And the reasoning for that is that this is not a prayer that Jesus himself prayed, nor could he have prayed. For in the prayer, it says, Forgive us of our sins as we also forgive our debtors. And scripture is very clear that Jesus Christ was sinless. So this tells us this is a template. It is a, a pattern for prayer for us. How we are to pray in all circumstances, not what we should pray word for word. And because it is a template, because it is a pattern, we have to understand then the truths that are within it. So on Wednesday nights, as I've said, with our children, with our youth, we've taken a considerable amount of time to look at and understand what prayer is. So, so far we've taught them, and we've learned, and I want you to learn today, that prayer, number one, is for believers only. Prayer is also not to inform God of what you need, for we've already read that our Father knows what we need before we ask Him. It's also not to convince God That you know a better way and lastly prayer does not change God's mind for the scripture tells us that God is not a man that he should change his mind and the point the reason I bring these up the point is is that if we misinterpret what prayer is then we will misapply it in our lives and when we misapply it it will lead to one of two things first it'll lead to an absence of prayer because we'll believe that we're okay by ourselves, that we don't need God, that we're not dependent upon him. And secondly, it leads to infrequent prayers. If we misinterpret what prayer is, it leads to infrequent prayers. We then begin to treat prayer as if it's a medication to deal with our ailment. And once that ailment is gone, then we no longer need prayer. So with that being said, I wanna give you a working definition that we've been using specifically within the youth The definition of prayer that we have used is calling on God to fulfill his promises. Calling on God to fulfill his promises. It is not demanding anything from God. It's not thinking that he will not come through because God is faithful. But it is praying in a total state of dependence upon him and submission to God's plan. You see, it's asking God to work all things according to his will not to ours so the pattern that we're given that Jesus gives us it's more concerned with the truth within the prayer the truth of who God is than the words that we specifically say and when we pray with that kind of understanding when we pray with the truth of who God is and submitting to his will we will pray very differently very differently So that brings us to the first petition. Our first point, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. And this one is oftentimes, it's glossed over. We seem to just go right over it, and it causes us to miss such vital truths that will lead us to an admiration of who God is, of who he is. First, we have to realize the necessity to pray together. It does not read my father. It does not read your father. It says our father. We as a church should pray together. Too often we hear it said, or maybe we've, you've said it yourselves, I'm praying for you. But what we failed to do is stop and actually pray together in the moment. The church should be one that prays together. And we see this theme. It's carried throughout the template of prayer, the prayer. We see our Father give us our daily bread, our debts. We also, our debtors, lead us, deliver us. There is great power and encouragement when the church takes every moment to pray together. It is vital for every individual believer and is also vital for the life of the church Martin Luther, he's often been credited with this phrase. And listen closely. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And we could easily take that and also say to be a church without prayer is no more possible to be alive without breathing. A church that does not pray together is not alive. A church that does not pray together is not one that depends upon God, but begins to depend upon human efforts, human will, or events, or programs. We show our dependence upon God through our prayers together. Listen to what John MacArthur says. He makes a a very valid point he says when we do this when the church prays together to our father it removes the matter of selfishness and we pray according to what is best for all not just one we pray according to what is best for all for the body of believers not just ourselves we pray for corporate unity for corporate needs caring for one another this leads us to ask ourselves one do we pray Is there an absence of prayer in our lives? Do we depend upon God? And when we pray, do we pray for what is best for all or for ourselves? I guarantee that if we prayed more with our brothers and sisters, that we would pray what is best for all. These are questions that we must continually ask as we grow And as we need to guard against our pride, as we need to guard against our selfish nature that we battle with. And I want to back up. I want to address a little bit. Some of you here today may be thinking, well, we don't need to pray with others. Because in verse 6 we read and we're told to go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Don't hear me wrong. That is vital. We must do that. You must spend time alone with God in prayer. Absolutely, but we also see in Scripture a devotion to corporate prayer. As an example, in Acts two forty-two, we see the disciples. It says, "And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers." None of us would be able to stand up here today and say that it's not good to pray together. That would be foolish of us. And when we think of it that way we will all quickly acknowledge that we are to pray together. You see, the primary point in verse 6, and really the entire Sermon on the Mount, which is in the context that we're in, it's about the position of the heart. Not so much about the position of your posture or what room you're in, but it's about the heart. A contrite heart, not a prideful heart. So we must be a church that prays together. And secondly, I want to make sure we don't overlook the term father. The term father, this reveals a theological truth about who God is. Many of you may not have a good view of what an earthly father is. I understand that. But be thankful that our earthly fathers are not the standard. Our earthly fathers are not the standard. God is the standard, and he is the perfect father. As one scholar stated, he said he is personal and caring, a father, not a tyrant, but one who establishes the real nature of fatherhood. Did you hear that? The one who establishes the real nature of fatherhood. Because of this, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, church family, we must remember we are not to point each other or our children to ourselves. Fathers, we do not want our children to look like us. We need to point them to Christ to make them look more like him, not like us. Our Father also tells us that he is always with us. It's a a term of endearment. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And we need to know this truth. We need to hold on to this. What this refers to is God's eminence. God's eminence and I'm gonna stop you before you turn your ears off, that's not too big of a word, okay? Our children learn foreign languages, chemistry, physics, many other things, and I'm sure some of you may have become licensed medical professionals overnight, so we can learn this as well, okay? God's eminence. We are all to grow in the knowledge of who God is, and his eminence, what this means, what it implies, is that God's presence and his activity is within all things. He is near, he is beside us, but he's not just near us. He is actively engaged to bring about his purposes. How great a God we serve who is fully present at all times and actively engaged to bring about his plan. He's not far away. He is imminent. He is with us as a loving Father. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. You see, if God did not fill the earth, if he was distant, if he pulled his spirit from our presence, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to dust, declares Job. Do I not fill heaven and earth? No one other than God can fill the earth. So when we pray this, when we pray our Father, realize that he is fully present and he is actively engaged in your life no matter what your circumstance is. He is bringing about his purposes. He is fulfilling his plan. So have peace knowing that he is with you, knowing that he is actively engaged in your circumstances. And knowing that he knows what is best for you. But again, how great a God we serve, because he does not stop there. No, he is greater than this earth. Not only does he fill the earth, but it tells us he also is in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Our Father who is also, is fully present with us at all times, actively engaged. He also transcends all things. Psalm 113, 5-6 says, Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? This is the transcendence of God. It reminds us that he is independent of all things. He is above all things, seated on his throne today. He is in control, ruling over all things. We need to remember that no one else is in control except for God. And when we, re- we understand that, when we reflect upon God's eminence and his transcendence, it will change our prayers. It will change our dependence upon him. When we as a church recognize this, we recognize that God also sets the standard. He is the only one That sets the standard because he is above all things because he governs all things he therefore determines what is good what is right what is loving he determines truth and that never changes what a great god that we serve that we always know what the target is god does not change only he has the authority to set the standard Psalm 15.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. See, when we begin to see God as, as possessor of heaven and earth, when we understand that what he does is always good. It's always pleasing and perfect. Then we will pray, and complete dependence upon him. As a church, we will pray in complete dependence upon him. It teaches us as believers in Christ that prayer is going to God, asking him to fulfill his promises. Again, recognizing he is actively engaged in our lives. He alone is in control. He alone sets the standard, and therefore he alone is worthy of praise and honor. As our Father... God is concerned for the needs of his children. And as the one in heaven, he is powerful, all-powerful. He is sovereign and able to bring that about. So when we have that type of understanding, and when we pray God's eminence and his transcendence, it naturally leads us to an understanding and a deep conviction for his holiness. For his holiness. The greatness of God when we see that, it leads us to pray, Hallowed be your name. Which brings us to point two. Hallowed be your name. To be holy, it means to be separate, to be marked off, completely unique from anything and everything. And we see this magnified. We see God's uh, transcendence and his eminence magnified, which brings about his holiness in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, And listen closely. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the flesh. We see him high and lifted up, seated on his throne. We see him with us, actively engaged. He is holy. He is separate. Isaiah 6, 2-3 is probably one of the most famous passages for God's holiness. And it reads, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim themselves were unable to look upon the holiness of God, and they cried out to what is known as the superlative degree. That's simply saying that someone is strong, stronger, strongest, or they're fast, faster, and, or, and fastest. It has to be repeated three times to reach the maximum degree. However, because God is unique, because he is separate from all things, we see a difference. It does not read holy, holier, holiest. But what does it say? Holy, holy, holy. This is because God's holiness is his being. Holy does not define God. Rather, God defines holiness. There is nothing that can be compared to God. Nothing. What else fills the heavens and the earth? Everything about God is holy. Everything about God that we see in his word is set apart. We see Jesus is the holy one. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Word, the Holy Temple, the Holy Land, and on and on. For there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hallowed be your name, O Lord. So, what is our response to this? What is our response to God's holiness? How does it practically guide us in our prayers? God's holiness should cause two responses from us. And we see this in scripture. Specifically, we see this laid out for us in Revelation 15:4. In Revelation 15:4. For it says, "Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed." God's holiness should first cause us to fear. For who will not fear? For you are holy. We should not be wise in our own eyes, but we should fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You see, God's holiness, it reveals our sinfulness. It reveals our total depravity that every part of every person is corrupted by sin. A.W. Pink states, The best that a sinful man brings forth is defiled. The best that I can bring forth is defiled. The best that you can bring forth is defiled. And that's why we need Christ. That's why we need Jesus Christ to redeem us, to save us, because we are defiled and God is holy and he demands holiness. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Scripture tells us that His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Our second response to God's holiness that, we, that should come out within our prayers is glorify your name. For Revelation 15 4 said, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Because God is holy, the utmost reverence and worship becomes your approach to Him. Again, listen, A.W. Pink gives us great guidance on this. He says, The more our hearts are awed by his indescribable holiness, the more acceptable will be our approaches unto him. We must be like that of Isaiah who said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. It is to pray, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, help us to be in awe of your holiness, to be like that of Isaiah and say, woe is me, for I am lost, that we would fear fear you as sinners, and then we would revere you as our Father who calls us, changes us, sanctifies us, for your name's sake. Let us, Lord, not attempt to take any credit Or glory from you, for you alone deserve to be worshipped. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see, our understanding of God as Father, sitting on his throne in heaven, separated from all things as holy, it then determines our worship of him. It determines our obedience of him. And it also will determine our evangelism. This leads us again naturally into your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Again, praying this practically in our lives, praying your kingdom come, it again first recognizes God and his position of authority. It is saying, God, we know that you are seated high, that you rule over everything, and that your promises will be fulfilled. And as citizens of your kingdom, Lord, we are ready to be in your presence. It is not to say, and listen closely, it is not to say, God, I love you, but I'm not ready to leave this world yet. That is in direct opposition to praying your kingdom come. And it's a failure of us to recognize where identity is and where our citizenship lies. To say, not yet, God. God. Is to say, not your kingdom come, for my ways are not your ways, Lord. But as believers, we are called not to love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So again, what does this practically look like in our prayers? What does it practically look like to pray, your kingdom come? Again, this should result in two responses from us. Understanding who God is and his kingdom should result in repentance and evangelism. Praying your kingdom come, it recognizes God's rule, and it results in our repentance and evangelism. We see this early on in Matthew chapter 3 and 4. We see both John the Baptist and Jesus. What did they begin to preach? repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To pray for God's kingdom to be fully realized on earth is to call for God's final judgment. It is to call his judgment upon this earth. For when Christ returns, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And then he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. To pray your kingdom come is to pray for a day where there will be judgment. So therefore repent, turn from your sinful ways, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, turn towards Christ fighting for holiness. Realize that it brings judgment. Therefore repent. Secondly, praying your kingdom come, it results in asking God to strengthen you to be faithful, to evangelize the lost. If we are going to pray your kingdom come, bring your judgment upon this earth, will we not want to evangelize and share the message with others? As one scholar stated, he said, your kingdom come is a prayer for the success of the gospel in the world. It is a prayer for the success of the gospel in the world. It is saying, Lord, we know that the gospel has changed us. We know that you are coming with judgment. So we pray that your kingdom will continue to be extended in this world by regenerating others. Gather your sheep, Lord, for we know not one of them will be lost. Everything that we pray should be for the purpose of God's kingdom, not your own. And again, this naturally leads us into your will be done. Your will be done. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we have to pray your will be done. We cannot separate the two. It is again an affirmation of God's kingdom to be fulfilled, but it is also, and listen to this, it is also an act of submission to God's purposes. It is an act of submission to God's purposes. A prayer of obedience to his will. This is not a passive prayer. We can't pray this and then say, Okay, God, we know that you're with us. We know that you're sovereign. You transcend all things. You're in control. You're bringing your purposes to come. So I'm just going to stand back. And I'm going to watch you, Lord. No, this is a prayer of active submission to God. For not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is praying, Lord, do not let us be passive. Don't let us stand idly by, but rather help me to be obedient in carrying out your will, to be obedient in being the salt and the light of the earth, living in a manner worthy of the gospel and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, your kingdom is coming. Help us to be obedient to your will until that day we therefore have to ask ourselves is our life full of worldly desires are we filling our minds our eyes our ears and our heart with things of this world or are we praying Lord your kingdom come your will be done help us to fight for holiness abstaining from our selfish sinful desires and filling our minds our hearts and our eyes with the word of God? Are we storing up God's word in our hearts, being transformed by the renewing of our minds? And if you have been raised with Christ, we are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Your will be done, Lord, Give us strength to put to death what is earthly in us as individuals and as a church. Another question this could lead us to, we can ask, well, how often do we miss the opportunities to share Christ? How often are we unfaithful with God's message? How often do we hear or even say ourselves, I'll share Jesus with them once they know me, once they trust me? That is not in the scriptures. Because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about how much somebody trusts you. It's the message of reconciliation that God has entrusted to us as believers. And we're to share that message with everyone in all situations, not just when we are comfortable and ready to share. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16 But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Are we faithful? Are we obedient? as the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere? Or only when we're comfortable? These are convicting questions to wrestle with that this pattern of prayer should lead us through. We have to wrestle with them. And we also don't want to miss the great hope that we have. Did you hear that in the beginning of 2 Corinthians 2? Did you hear what it said? But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. He leads us in a triumphal procession. The battle has already been won. You cannot lose. What great encouragement that should bring us, and what boldness that should bring us to share the gospel with others. We should not say we will share Christ when they get to know me, or when I am comfortable, or when they trust me. Not only are we not guaranteed tomorrow, but nor are they. We must realize that the power of the gospel message is in the message itself. It is not dependent upon us, but it is dependent upon God and the Holy Spirit who takes that word and uses it to open their eyes, to give them a new heart, to transform them, to make them a new creation in Christ. We have nothing to do with that. We are simply called to be faithful. We must share it with boldness. With love, with great patience, and with hope. And I challenge us to share it with urgency. To share it with urgency. We must be obedient. We must be faithful with proclaiming Christ. For scripture says, For how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Why would we not want to share? Why would we not want to proclaim what we believe to be the greatest message ever given? As it was said last week, sing on and preach on. Sing on and preach on. Do we desire God's kingdom to come? Or do we say, I love you, God, but I'm not ready to be with you? Do we desire for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Or are we passive? Are we standing back? Are we saying, well, that's not my job. That's not my duty. That's not my responsibility. Or are we even passive in our own life? Are we fighting for holiness? Are we abstaining from things of this world? Are we being renewed by the transformation of our minds? storing up God's Word within us. There will be that day for those that are here today that do not know Christ as their Savior. You cannot say that you have been born again by the Spirit. There are very few guarantees in life, but there is one that the Word of God is very clear on. It is absolutely 100% guaranteed. There will be that day when Jesus Christ returns, and when he does, it is not for peace. It is for judgment. And it is by God's grace, by his providence, that you're here today. That you're here to hear of the greatness of God, the truths that we sang together of who God is and of his holiness, so that you may understand that you are separated from God in your sin. There is a great chasm that exists between you and God cry out to God today. Cry out to Him that the Holy Spirit may open your eyes to your sin. That He may open your eyes to His holiness. And that He would change your heart and change your desires, turning you towards Him. For unless you are born again by the Spirit, you will face that day. You will face judgment. Your time in this world, it is short. It is fleeting, but there is hope in the age to come. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, believing in your heart and professing with your mouth that Jesus, as truly God, as truly man, was a substitute for your sins upon that cross, that his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension was effective to save you, then you are promised eternity. That is a promise for all born-again believers. Call out to him in faith. Confess your sins. And by his strength, ask him to help you turn away from your desires and to turn towards him. Until then, you will continue to be enslaved by your sin. Only Christ can set you free. For the believers that are here today, we have hope. God is building his church When we pray, your kingdom come. When we pray, your will be done. We are to continue to confess our sins, to repent, to continue to turn towards him, to fight for holiness. For that is a fruit of regeneration. It is evidence that God has changed you. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to press forward in proclaiming the good news of Christ to the lost. We must remember that praying your kingdom come it is asking for God to bring his judgment. Asking God to judge this world. So we must continue to repent and we must fight for holiness and we must proclaim the good news to the lost. Not praying in passivity Not saying, your will be done, I'm going to stand back and watch, Lord. But give me strength to stand firm in the faith. In every circumstance. Make us more like Christ. We should not merely listen to the words and deceive ourselves, but we must do what it says. In John 4, 34, Jesus, he states, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Let that be our desire that as a church it is being built up by God's grace. That our desire would be to accomplish his work. In closing, I want you to walk away and understand that prayer is calling on God to fulfill his promises. It is not to remind him and not because he will not fulfill his promises. Rather, it is to recognize the greatness of God, the holiness of God, and to align our wills with his. It is recognizing our dependence upon him, actively fighting for holiness and proclaiming Christ to the lost. You see, Jesus gave us this template, a pattern for prayer in every circumstance. And because it is a pattern, we have to understand the truths within it so that we can pray by the Spirit. As I stated earlier, a quote from Martin Luther, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a church without prayer is no more possible to be alive without breathing. With those truths... There is no better way for us to conclude today than to spending time in corporate prayer. Let us pray.